This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Hope you're making the most of what's left of summer. Another week and it's autumn. But good news, Mr Kevin Healy is back. But first, Palestine-Australian Amin Abbas talking about the destruction of the orphanage and the universities which Australian charity Olive Kids supported in Gaza. PhD candidate Sasha Gillies-Sakakis with a focus on Cuba, ground down by the sanctions by the US and COVID, but turning the corner. Senior lecturer at RMIT University, Benoit Campmark, analysing the ABC series Nemesis and other issues, including the deteriorating health of Julian Assange. And former career diplomat John Lander with his views on how Australians have been betrayed by their governments. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, and I think he's had a pretty good week. A week, Jane, listener. Oh, I hear the groans. Sorry, we're back. When first, what we can't ignore but can't satirise, all these weeks later, the only change is the slaughter and genocide may be getting worse. The population herded into a corner from which there is no escape. While Australia servilely follows orders from Zion and the US and maintains a ban on aid based on the word of the slaughterers, who have not produced the proof they claim to have. Netanyahu declaring UNRWA should be disbanded altogether, one more plank in the genocidal plan, while Zion's backers make mealy-mouthed mutterings about killing too many civilians. They, including Australia, don't tell us how many deaths, injuries and displacements are acceptable, are not too many, while continuing to supply the merchants of death merchandise to the killing machine. At a recent Sunday rally, and how encouraging that thousands are still turning out week after week, one speaker after the chair had said those bringing hate to the rallies can bleep off. He avoided the F word. The next speaker said, and Penny Wong, and hasn't she been an effing disappointment? Couldn't have said it better, I thought. May Monday, the age, Monday last week, the age of the Financial Review had reasonably balanced coverage of the disaster happening and going to get worse in Rafa, while the Murdoch Herald Sun's only coverage was terrorist tunnels being uncovered beneath an UNRWA building, based again solely on the word of the Zionist propaganda machine. Now, a week or weeks when this year's Closing the Gap report on another people whose land was stolen showed no improvement in 14 of 17 targets, 14 of 17 areas of disadvantage. Still, as more than 60% of the non-Indigenous declared last year, no problem, we'll just continue to recognise that they don't exist in the first place, terra nullius, non-land, non-people, no problem. And so Parliament and important practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all got together to celebrate all that. And the caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo, Constable Peter Duffer, told the celebration a His Most Gracious Majesty's commission into how the people who don't exist so mistreat and don't care about their dear little children would solve all those problems that don't exist. Then again, there's disconnect and disconnect. 
let's disconnect from the non-land, non-people, problem solved, assuming something that doesn't exist can be a problem. But the terror bit of terra nullius would disintegrate in terror, the world as we know it would collapse if caring employers have to disconnect from their ingrate, lazy, avaricious workers. Expressed cogently and beautifully by our old mate, Mego Neil Before Profits, supremo of great corporate citizen and fossil Woodside with profits. The right to disconnect would cause challenges for companies working across multiple time zones. Given we are a global organisation with times that span between Houston and Perth, there are literally no working hour overlaps. Uh, that's a problem, Meg? Problem? Problem? It would stop us ripping off our workers 24-7. How can a responsible fossil survive if we can only exploit our workers for the hours we pay them? Strong point, Meg, strong point. Expressed as lucidly and intelligently by the caring business class shadowy minister, Michaelia Costa Workers. The socialists have handed caring business class relations to their masters, the evil unions. She fingered the problem, displaying her bottomless capacity for thought and reinforcing the pride of her elocution teacher. For the problems don't stop with giving workers a life. It also wants many of them to be paid when they're quite happy living in flexible poverty. Caring employers know that's what they want. Flexibility, the right to choose what hours they'll work to maintain their fun, fun, fun life of poverty. Proof, as caring employers and Michaela point out, that caring business class relations must be left to caring employers and workers to reach a mutual agreement free from government intervention, free from restrictive laws crippling work practices like minimum wages and conditions. Flexibility, win-win. Michaela was a partner with Free Kills the Workers, the biggest anti-worker, no, no, sorry, pro-flexible business class relations law firm in the country, which drafted the highly successful and popular work choices. Yet I always feel that if I hit the court and someone said, Michaela's going to represent you, I reckon I'd plead guilty and throw myself at the mercy of. And the white coal is heaven supremo Paul Flynn said same job, same pay laws would be terribly demotivating for workers, showing his deep concern for his wage slaves, or sorry, dedicated workforce. They realise it's important, it's for their own good, that they get lower pay, Paul explained. While the witch bank, which used to be our bank, still manages record profits despite being fined $10 million from the petty cash tin for underpaying workers about $16 million by keeping them on individual agreements they knew were ripping them off. The very business class relations system Michelle and Co tell us is good for all of us. His honour, and this is hard to believe, seemed to think the wage theft or underpayments may not have been absolutely inadvertent. That's hard to believe, isn't it? Now, tough quiz. So I'll give us plenty of time to think about it. Full page ad in Tubler Aussie Capitalist Review Glossy Magazine, 100 Top Business Graduates. I'd like to play my part by leading people with empathy and humanity. Sophie, graduate process engineer, Weeper. Create a better tomorrow with our graduate plan, Rio Tinto. Tough one, but 
Try coming up with just one, just one example worldwide of empathy and humanity by Rio Tinto, Rio Tinto the planet. As I said, we'll need plenty of time. But one outstanding exemplar of empathy and humanity, the pride of the hayseed and sheepshit party, Barnacle. And isn't it cruel how some people seem to be enjoying schadenfreude over poor Barnacle lying on a Canberra street mumbling incoherently into his phone? Cruel, cruel, cruel. Falling over himself to represent the people, pure dedication, exhibited the previous weekend when he led a rally with co-meteorological experts, usual suspects Keith Pitt-Pony, Matt Canavan of Salt uh, of Coal, One Notion's that appalling Hoonsun, unhinged True Blue Aussie Party, that's Clive Palmer Gina's lot, Ralph Babble, <coughs> protesting over reckless renewables based on their deeply researched knowledge that there is no such thing as climate change, promoting non-reckless coal and gas and oil and uranium. So obviously the socialists who tell us they know there is such a thing as climate change, if there is such a thing, are not approving nearly enough new gas and coal projects. For they, the socialists, know we can't transition from coal and gas if there is no coal and gas from which to transition, indicating the cosmic choice facing the electorate. Unless there was a midnight lightning bolt on the road from Damascus, well, well, from the booze up, and Barnacle was mumbling through his alcoholic haze, I've seen the light. Isn't he building up an enviable rap sheet? So the climate change that doesn't exist had nothing to do with the storm that hit us Tuesday last week or the storms in extreme weather now daily occurred somewhere. Thus the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, for instance, on behalf of Barnacle and Keith and Matt and that appalling and Ralph et al., declared the state socialists had failed. It was all their fault. They hadn't provided enough fossils. Renewables don't work. So all those twisted poles and fallen wires and damaged infrastructure had nothing to do with it. Power would have powered on but for a lack of coal and gas. The coal power that crashed was due to renewables. That's pure logic. As long as you know, the extreme weather has nothing to do with climate change because there is no such thing as. Then again, during the break, there was a capitalist review, review editorial, Gina Hart-Hart sets crucial to green mining transition. And I thought, if that's the case, forget it. Goodbye, Mother Earth. Gina sense dollars and cents. That's her idea of sense. Dollars and cents and hysteria. Personal tragedy, listener. The whopping sin over five days delighted us with bits of Taylor ending up with our very own life-size copy. Tragedy. I miss the Sunday edition. And... Uh, <clears throat> Although I missed her feet, I've only got Taylor with no feet. Then a brainwave. All that's left to poor old Captain Cook is his feet. So, genius, eh? And celebrating the His Most Gracious Majesty and US of the UN of the US of the World Invasions in one fell swoop. Meanwhile, in the real world, the coalition lot voted against that motion urging the US of to stop pursuing Julian Assange for the heinous crime of exposing their war crimes because, as Constable Duffer pointed out and Barnacle burped, we must respect the US of legal system. Sure, sure. We have great respect for a system stacked with Donald Trample, the poor judges, 
a system which locks people, largely black people, up on death row for 20 or 30 years and then murders them. Nothing but respect. Still, True Blue Aussie is likely to lock up a whistleblower here for the same heinous crime, exposing our war crimes. Well, someone should go to jail over them and the odds on the war criminals themselves ever doing time are a million to one. Finally, and oh, how could we forget, what national excitement and celebration. Big Supremo Anthony Albinguzi has announced his engagement and so has his partner Jody, And even better, to each other. It's all excitement, isn't it? And given he's such a dedicated socialist, we can be sure there'll be none of the usual suspect big end of town hangers on at the wedding. Good afternoon. And the unmistakable Mr Kevin Healy, and I'm sure he's not hanging out for an invitation, but he's got an invitation for you to listen to City Limits tomorrow morning at 9am. Are you a 3CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. Call 03 9419 8377 or sign up online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. From Melbourne to Mildura, the Victorian Mosque Open Day is back. On Sunday the 25th of February, mosques across Victoria will open their doors to all Victorians interested in exploring and celebrating the diverse cultural and religious tapestry that defines our state. Like so many others, the Victorian Muslim community is deeply hurting because of the war on Gaza. This year, we will be acknowledging our brothers and sisters by incorporating a Palestinian theme into the broader purpose of mutual respect, understanding and inclusiveness. Attendees can anticipate a range of engaging experiences, including community discussions, henna art, jumping castles, sausage sizzles and more. Find your local mosque at www.icv.org.au forward slash VMOD. The Islamic Council of Victoria is a 3CR supporter. Brunswick Music Festival presents Sydney Road Street Party, Sunday, March the 3rd from 12pm. Over 90 artists performing on one massive day. Catch Bench Press, Billiam and the Split Bills, Bumpy, Charlie Needs Braces, Chick Chicka, Merpire, Michael Beach, Al Carlson, Pauper Spit, Teether and Kuya Neal, Yorinda and heaps more. Plus, markets, community stalls and parties happening all along Sydney Road. More info at brunswickmusicfestival.com.au Brunswick Music Festival is a 3CR supporter. Olive Kids is an Australian registered foundation dedicated to improving the lives of Palestinian children. It established its orphanage sponsorship program when it was founded in 2007. The program started in collaboration with an East Jerusalem nursery, Emison, in 2010 and Al Amal Institute for Orphans in Gaza, which has been the main focus in recent years. Gaza has seen a high number of orphan children as a result of the frequent Israeli bombing on the Strip since 2008. Also involved medical missions, 
Nutrition Initiatives and Education Scholarship Fund. Tragically, all that folded following the 7th of October last year. I spoke recently with Amin Abbas, a Diaspora Palestinian and founding board member of Olive Kids. Amin, what has Olive Kids meant to you over those years? I often actually refer to Olive Kids as my third child. Olive Kids is an organization that has grown to be extremely effective, although we're small, we're 100% volunteering, but it has been like a very effective organization to really assist people on the ground in, in Gaza in particular uh, for the children. And it really means a lot to me. So given what's happening and, you know, watching our best work really in ruins um, has been extremely devastating. And of course, even before the present time, there have been challenges along the way with the incursions by Israel, the bombings of Israel over many years. Correct. There's been times where we had damage to work that we've done. Uh, we've had some of our uh, projects that the uh, um, you know incursions or some of the damage basically was impacting the work and and the, you know the, the contribution that we've made. Uh, there's been cases where it was actually even more devastating than, than this, like losing a couple of our children in one of the UNRWA shelters, um, two kids that were sponsored by us. Ali Shinabari is one that, you know, was very devastating for us, a young child who was nine when he was killed by an airstrike when he was sheltering with his uh, sibling. Um, so, yeah, we, we've had those moments of devastation in the past, but the scale this time is very, very different. What is left of Olive Kids, your programs? Our focus generally, like in a number of areas, just to give you like a, a picture. So Olive Kids works very closely through partnerships. And one of our biggest partners, Al Amal, uh, is located in the north of Gaza, where we have the orphanage. We have 400 children that are sponsored by Australians. Uh, Al Amal located in Brunel, has been pretty much destroyed, so I would say nearly all flattened. A lot of the children were evacuated. We lost. We know for a fact that we've lost four children. We believe we lost more, but we just don't know because we can't, like, obviously nobody can help us validate the whereabouts of the other children. So it has been devastating. The orphanage is going to take years to be rebuilt, so we're not sure what's going to happen to the program. We know that kids will need the support, and we actually know that there's a thousands more children that are orphans. Uh, so it's not like the need is, is reducing. The need is actually amplifying, uh, multifold. Uh, but we just don't know how we're going to be able to work with our partners basically impacted in the way they have. Uh, one of the projects that we did in the past was, for example, solar panels for that orphanage. And, and in further extracts, they, they were totally destroyed. Again, that's probably about over $120,000 worth of our daughter's money. The orphanage had a whole floor that we built that costed about half a million Australian dollars through donors here. That's been obviously uh, now flattened. So this is just one partner. Um, when we're talking about the hospital that we work with, uh, mostly focusing on maternity, it was hit by multiple airstrikes. Uh, it's still barely operational, but it is operational, uh, which is the good news. But like obviously this hospital, every other hospital in Gaza was actually attacked. We're talking about uh, the 
university where we've had uh, multiple scholarships, about maybe a dozen scholarships completed, and, and we've only signed up back in June last year for 50 new scholarships. Gaza University has been flattened, and, and so to every university in Gaza. So, Jan, what we're talking about here is really a total devastation. We're talking about 80% of uh, Gazan homes uh, being either destroyed or unlivable. So we're really talking about a scale that is different level. Uh, so whatever we look through, like, you know, obviously the impact on, on our partners, uh, the impact of our work is, is definitely going to be huge. What we know for a fact, though, is the need now is, is just massive. Apart from the children, what about the carers, the teachers, the doctors, the nurses who you've been working with? We know we, we, we lost, obviously, quite a lot. We know that the, the, the devastation is one thing, but the loss of life and the loss of people that we know and work with is, is just totally different. But also the ones that are working with us right now, the devastation is in their lives is massive. Like these are people that have been displaced eight or nine times. Uh, a lot of them are actually in Rafah at the moment. And as I'm sure you and your listeners are well aware that Rafah is imminently under an invasion, a grand invasion, aside from the fact that they've been hit with airstrikes regularly. I mean, when I've been speaking to them even this week, yesterday, you could hear the, uh, uh, the bombing in the background. So we're talking about heavy impact on everybody. And this is what, what uh, we've been facing for quite a long time, is that in the past, we didn't have enough money to cover the projects that we, we wanted to do. This time around, the, the, the amount of work is much, much larger. We had some money, but we could not execute because there was nobody on the ground to help us do it. Uh, when people have no logistics to execute, when people, uh, obviously, that we work with are you know, worried about their own families and, and feeding their own families, it was much, much harder, let alone the fact that they're losing their loved ones and they were heavily impacted with what's going on. It has been very, very difficult in every way you look at it for them. Uh, and the fact that we actually lost, you know, journalists, we, um, Rujda Siraj is a case in point where it's somebody who's reported for the ABC on Al-Amal and the devastation, and he was killed himself just before even the package that was, you know, basically done for the ABC was actually was never aired. So we, we're talking about people who we're dealing with that we've lost uh, in the last 130 days, which is the day. What's the next stage for Olive Kids? We're not going to stop. Um, this is a fact. We have been, obviously, um, our work has been tripled for, for a number of weeks. Only this week we've managed to distribute nearly 1,500 fruit and veg baskets. So basically, as you know, people in Rafa um, have been eating canned food. A lot of the people in Gaza have been eating canned food for a long time. Uh, and we've managed to secure... Uh, from some of the farmers that were still operating in Gaza, not obviously huge, but we've managed to secure some uh, fruit and vegetables and we arranged for some distributions in Rafah in the last uh, couple of days. So we've managed to do that distribution and just complete it. So um, uh, that's the good news. So we are able to do some work. It's always a, a risky business because what we commit to do and, you know, we obviously sign MOUs and work on, on certain projects and make the arrangements, whether the actual produce or whatever like we secure is guaranteed would be always a risk. Like, for example, right now we're working on blankets and mattresses for people in Rafa. We've managed to secure some. 
whether that happens or not, whether they, obviously what we're trying to procure is damaged or not, whether the people on the ground are able to excuse on what we're arranging, um, it is, is always on the list. So we don't know for a fact we will work or not. But what we know is in the end of this, there'll be massive number of thousands, in fact, of orphans. There'll be a lot of children that have lost limbs. And we're talking about ch children, 10 children a day uh, lose an arm or, an, or a leg. In the past, for example, we've done a lot of prosthetics uh, projects for, for these children. So I'm sure we'll have a massive need in the future. So the need is going to be massive. We definitely would like to do what we can. And our work is just going to be growing, not reducing. We're just hoping that this time comes very, very soon because we can't afford to have more loss of life and more impact on the children. If people donate to Olive Kids now, how can you get that money through and who do you get it through to now? So we, as, as I mentioned earlier, we work purely through partners. Some of our partners are unable to work at the moment due to obviously the circumstances of uh, these partners, a good example of that is the university where it's basically non-operational. Uh, we have been working with uh, the orphanage of Al-Amal, although the orphanage does not exist. Some of the uh, the teams that are in Gaza are able to work with us. They have bank accounts in the West Bank, not just in Gaza. So this is how funding that goes to their uh, West Bank accounts could potentially be uh, leveraged. And what happens typically in Gaza is people are willing to wait for the payment. For example, if I'm a farmer and um, I have some, some fruit and veg that I'm willing to sell for a reputable organization like the Al-Amal and all of kids, they would be willing to uh, to wait for the payment because they obviously don't want to lose the ability to you know, uh, give that produce to somebody that can benefit from it. And also, like obviously, it's also uh, ultimately something that they, uh, they, they want to continue doing. So we are able to do that through an AML at the moment. We are also talking to other international organizations like the Red Cross. And we're also like having conversations with others to be able to continue to work. And, and by the way, um, a lot of the NGOs have been collaborating a lot to try and figure out the best way to basically get some work done on the ground. So we're quite talking to the Save the Children, for example, here in Australia. And like I said, to internationals like uh, Red Cross and Red Crescent to figure out the best way to move forward. Have you had any contact with the Australian authorities because your Olive Kids is a registered organisation with Australia? We have been appealing to uh, the Australian government, obviously, to ensure that there's safety and, and we're able to distribute humanitarian aid through DFAT in the past. But to be honest, uh, like everybody else, there's, there's been like a little that the Australian government was, you know, basically interested to do and to be perfectly honest, I, we feel a lot of what has been happening so far has been lip service as opposed to truly putting some pressure on the uh, Israeli government to allow aid, to ensure that we're really protected. Uh, people who are you know, distributing that aid, hospitals, orphanages are actually protected. In fact, we know for a fact that we're, you know, we're just talking about the damage that we've, we've sustained. So the Australian government has been like, doing very little and we've given up on them really doing uh, some serious work in influencing. What we call a friend, or what they call, you know, Israel is a friend of Australia is what we hear all the time. But if your friend is committing some serious crimes against, uh, you know, humanity, um, maybe you need to really reconsider and rethink about your relationship with that friend. And, and this is not exactly how the Australian government has been operating for the last 130 days. I'm just wondering how, at this stage, the diaspora 
Palestinian diaspora here in Australia is coping with the, the news that comes out daily? It has been very difficult, probably one of the most difficult times for a lot of us uh, here. Uh, I think in large part because we feel we're living in in a country where there's a huge disconnect between people on the ground versus the government. I mean, you go to the protest every single weekend here in Melbourne, for example, and you see thousands and thousands of people from all walks of life supporting the Palestinian cause and really not wanting to like sit silent watching this genocide happening, or at least plausible genocide according to the ISDJ. Uh, and at the same time, our government repeats things like Israel has a right to defend itself, when in fact it's defending itself against people with occupiers. You have an obligation as an occupied government to protect the people you occupy. You don't actually defend yourself against them. So the Australian government really has a serious disconnect between its position and the people on the ground. And as Palestinians here, we see that. And, and we, we obviously appreciate the love and support we're getting from all average Australians. Uh, but at the same time, we're, we're really disgusted with the position that the Australian government is taking. Um, we also feel, you know, obviously uh, handicapped with not able to do a lot more. I mean, even like as organizations that are doing work, work on the ground, like all the kids, we still feel that we need, we need to do a lot more and we're unable to do a lot more because of what's happening. So we feel really devastated that we can't, let alone the average Palestinian here that watches the news every day and, and obviously feels uh, totally powerless to do something. So it has been very, very difficult. I think a lot of black people here have post-traumatic stress, even from afar. Uh, people who uh, are in Gaza obviously are feeling it much more. So we feel lucky in many ways, but at the same time, we can't really disconnect ourselves from uh, our people. Uh, so it has been a very difficult time. And people in Australia aren't content to just go out on the streets, maybe they're on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon to demonstrate in a rally. But there's teachers, students, doctors, health workers, unions. They're all taking their own actions in their own way. Absolutely. And, and we are seeing that and we, we really appreciate all what uh, many organisations and, and unions and professions are actually doing in support of you know, uh, uh, their own kind of professions or, or industries, if you like. Uh, this is amazing, but we need to do a lot more. Um, I mean, everybody needs to go and speak to their uh, government buddies, their, their ministries, their like uh, MPs, their, their, you know, the councils, uh, to push them, to push our government to put a lot more pressure on Israel. It's not enough just to say, like, for example, there was a statement this week yesterday from the Prime Minister with the Prime Minister of Canada and New Zealand. It's not enough really to say, hey, you know, we're concerned about people in Rafah. You need to take actions. You need to sever like diplomatic relationships with Israel. You need to stop arming uh, Israel. You need to stop trade. If you really want to put pressure uh, on a government that's committing war crimes, you can't just say, uh, please stop. They're not going to stop. You need to really put pressure on them to stop. And this is what everybody needs to do, is put pressure on our government to take a stance. And, and when it does, other governments would probably follow suit. People need to educate their friends, educate their colleagues, the neighbours right, about what's happening to help them also do a similar push. I think we need to remember that what's happening is unprecedented and we need everybody's voice, everybody's action to really help end this craziness and, and the genocide that is taking place. And get on the website and donate to Olive Kids. Absolutely. Uh, 
olifkids.org.au/donate. Every dollar that we uh, we get in donation is spent. We are 100% volunteering, and we'll continue to do what we can to help out on the ground. Thank you so much, Amin. Thanks, Jan. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Amin Abbas, founding board member of Olive Kids, and the kids of Gaza really need our help absolutely now. If you can help, olivekids.org.au slash donate. needs members to survive. By becoming a subscriber, you're helping us to remain fiercely independent and free of commercials and corporate influence. Are you a paid-up subscriber? It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Great value for 24-7 community-owned and community-controlled media. Please become a subscriber member today. Call the station on 03-9419-8377 or sign up online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, It's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. unites us and host a Feast for Freedom this year. Cook delicious global recipes gifted by refugees and come together with your friends, family and community while raising vital funds for the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Register now at feastforfreedom.org.au. The Asylum Seeker Resource Centre is a 3CR supporter. Over the past year, PhD candidate Sasha Gillies Lakakis was speaking on the program about his PhD thesis, Cuba and Pacific Island Relations in Health and Wellbeing. His visits to three Pacific Island countries, Solomon Islands, Fiji and Tonga. But today we focus on Cuba itself, where like many countries, particularly those suffering wider crippling US sanctions are struggling to provide the basics for its citizens. So, Sasha, Cuba in 2024. But before we come to this year, past years have been particularly difficult ones. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Jan. The past, I mean, really since COVID-19, the situation in Cuba has become a lot more severe, a lot more acute Um, We've seen a lot of really negative 
consequences of a lot of different processes in Cuba. Um, of course, the pandemic itself, that is still being felt even, um, you know, right through to today in 2024, in particular, the really, really severe impact that had on tourism in Cuba, which, as we know, is the economic lifeline for that country. Uh, tourism used to bring in the majority of the country's revenue, which has allowed it up until this point to continue financing its really admirable social programs, its internationalism abroad, all of these things that make Cuba so distinctive are financed in large part, not entirely, but in large part by the tourism industry. And we saw that disappear overnight during COVID-19 and it is still in the process of recovery. So just to give an idea, you know, before COVID-19, Cuba was receiving between 4 million and 6 million tourists each year. Um, and in fact, in 2019, it was reaching up to 6 million, you know, quite a high number. And then COVID happened, tourism just disappeared. And then they are still trying to clamber up to just 3 million tourists a year. And the Cuban government is confident that it will achieve that goal this year. So that is an improvement. But I mean, as you can see, it's still half the pre-COVID level. And that is nowhere near where it needs to be for those that sort of funding for the Cuban Revolution social programs and all those other really admirable programs that Cuba runs to keep up um, and to keep pace. So that was one really big issue. And of course, we have the ever-present challenge of the US embargo. So that is the economic, financial and commercial blockade on Cuba that strangles the country's foreign currency reserve, that prevents Cuba from conducting normal business relations uh, with companies and countries, not just those companies within the US, but companies from third countries that are afraid of being sanctioned or fined or barred from business in the US if they engage with Cuba. And this has always been a challenge, you know, since the revolution in 1959, or I should say since 1961 when the embargo was implemented. But it has become a lot more acute, uh, particularly after Trump. He introduced a raft of new measures, uh, in fact, over 200, to continue damaging Cuba and to continue damaging Cuba's economy and its ability to continue, you know, normal economic life. And Biden has implemented on top of those 200 measures, even more, about 30 measures so far, uh, ranging from visa bans for Cuban officials uh, to continued strangling of, for example, you know, food import channels and foreign currency reserve import channels for Cuba. So this is a really, really pressing challenge uh, that the island still hasn't overcome. Uh, and honestly, I think it'll be a very, very long time before Cuba can fully overcome this. In fact, let's be real, uh, the blockade is here to stay as long as the US exists in the current state that it is. So this is something that the, the island is still adjusting to, is still getting used to, is still trying to learn to live with. And then all of these issues have compounded, you know, what is now a very severe economic crisis in Cuba. We've seen inflation reach about 30 to 32 percent. It's one of the highest in the world. Now, it was actually higher last year. Uh, at the start of last year, it was, you know, reaching 40 percent inflation. So this is actually an improvement, even though 30 to 32 percent is still far too high and, you know, having a serious impact on prices on the island, having an impact on purchasing power and wages as well. It is a gradual improvement. But, you know, this just sort of gives an indication um, of how serious the economic crisis in Cuba is at this stage. Can I go back to the tourist industry? How has the embargo impacted on people coming to Cuba as tourists? I know 
with the embargo, it affects countries and businesses. But what about individuals? Interestingly, this area of tourism was not one that was targeted in a sort of ex- in the more extreme ways that other aspects of the Cuban economy have been targeted really until the last three or four years, where we saw some new, very specific legislation passed in the United States with the aim of um, degrading Cuba's tourism industry. And this was a very sort of cruel decision on the part of the Trump and the Biden administrations because they knew that this was coming at a time when Cuba really needs tourism to pick up the economy, get back on its feet and be able to improve the standard of living on the island. And they targeted this one industry that they know is what is required to do just that, you know, to get Cuba moving again, to get the economy back to some semblance of normality. And so what these measures do, I mean, first of all, for US citizens and even for Cuban Americans, so citizens who have joint citizenship, dual citizenship, I should say, is the removal of people-to-people exchanges as the main reason to be able to enter Cuba. So this was something that was introduced during the Obama administration um, as part of that sort of rapprochement between Cuba and the US about 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And it stipulated that US citizens could visit Cuba by ticking people-to-people exchanges as their reason to enter the country. That reason was removed about two years ago or a year and a half ago. So currently, US citizens don't actually have a legitimate reason to enter Cuba. There are still some exceptions, for example, study in very rare cases, business exchanges, things like that. Uh, But at the moment, US citizens who want to enter the country have to go through a third country. And that's how it was prior to the Obama rapprochement. You had to, for example, go to Mexico or to Canada and basically not get your passport stamped in Cuba. That was how it was done. And that is essentially how the situation is at the moment. It's reverted to that pre-Obama period where travel has become a lot more complicated for US citizens. But the sanctions have also impacted non-US citizens, non-US travellers and tourists who are trying to come to Cuba to experience the island and to see the country's reality. So one of the big issues is anyone who has visited Cuba since 2021, which is when Cuba was re Um, added to the state sponsors of terrorism list, they now are no longer eligible for an ESTA waiver. So that's essentially the electronic visa that you need to be able to either visit or transit through the United States. So for a lot of countries, it's quite easy to get that. You pay a certain amount, uh, you complete a very simple online form, and then you're allowed to either visit or transit the US for a certain period of time. Anyone who's visited Cuba since 2021, regardless of nationality, can no longer apply for that. They now have to apply for a full US visa, which is a very lengthy process. I actually had trouble with this myself. I was invited to speak at a conference in Hawaii on my research topic of Cuba-Pacific relations. Uh, But because I visited Cuba in 2022, they uh, wouldn't give me the ESTA and I had to go through the full visa process. And by the end of it, it was so lengthy and convoluted, I actually couldn't end up getting the visa in time. So all of these measures are designed to make visiting the country, even getting to the country, as difficult as is humanly possible to try and dissuade people from visiting Cuba. And then, of course, there's the economic, the commercial side of the sanctions, uh, which affect most major banks around the world. Even Australian banks do not work in Cuba. You can't use your credit card uh, or your debit card when you're on the island. I think maybe just Bank Australia, which is a much smaller local bank here in the country, is the only Australian bank uh, whose credit cards work 
in Cuba. So again, you know, this means that you have to prepare in advance. You have to take out your euros or your pounds or whatever it might be before you leave your country and then exchange them in Cuba, either at a Cadeca, one of the um, exchange bank exchange facilities, or with friends in the informal market. So it is just an extremely convoluted and complex process, particularly for people who haven't been before and who are just wanting to go for the first time and to experience the country. And particularly if they're not going as part of, I don't know, a tour or a brigade where you have some support in place. If you're going as an independent traveller, which is how the majority of people continue to visit Cuba, it is a really, really complex situation as a direct result of these US, these new US legislation packages. What about the reverse, Sasha, with people in Cuba wanting to visit other countries? Are there restrictions placed on them travelling to other countries, like to get a visa, say, to come to Australia? Can a Cuban come to Australia with a visa? One of the main issues to begin with is because of the sanctions, uh, of course, because Cuba is a global South country, it has quite a weak passport, you know, if we're talking about that sort of passport ranking system. So it doesn't have a lot of visa-free or, you know, mutual visa um, exemption agreements with other countries. So to begin with, that is a challenge. Um, now, there are some some countries where that's not the case. So a lot of Cuba's regional allies, you know, um, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Mexico, there are visa-free arrangements or, you know, visa upon arrival arrangements uh, for quite a few Latin American countries, quite a few African countries as well, and for some countries like China and Russia and uh, Middle Eastern countries like Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Iran. These are all, of course, you know, um, allies, either political or economic allies of Cuba. But in terms of countries that are a lot closer, like Canada and the United States, these visa arrangements don't exist. So to be able to visit, for example, the US, it is an extremely complicated process for most Cubans. A lot of the time you have to be able to prove uh, that you're there on special business and this is a very hard thing to achieve for most Cubans, or you have to be able to demonstrate that you have family in the US that are willing to sponsor you, that are willing to say you're not a migrant. And there's a lot of scrutiny on that process as well. Um, It's an expensive process. It's a lengthy process. I have a lot of friends in Cuba who are currently going through this issue at the moment. Now, they're applying for longer-term visas to, to live in the US or to temporarily work in the United States. Um, So these aren't tourism visas per se, but it is, regardless of the type of visa, a very difficult process for Cubans to enter the US, uh, which I think at a very personal level for a lot of Cuban families is really sad because it's a very common occurrence in Cuba. In fact, most Cubans will have quite a few relatives in the US, most of them, you know, in Florida or New York. And it's a really, really difficult process for them to be able to just visit these members of their family and vice versa for those Cuban Americans or Cubans resident in America to go back to the island is very, very difficult because of this really strained relationship that the US has created with Cuba. And if we're looking at a country like Australia, again, the visa process is expensive. Cuba does not have a mutual um, visa exemption arrangement with Australia. So, you know, Australians going have to apply for a visa and Cubans going, coming to Australia have to apply for a visa to be able to enter the country. And, you know, we got to see a little glimpse of this. Or, you know, I did and a lot of people in the Cuba Friendship Society did when we had our visitors last year, Ivan and Marianis, coming overseas from Cuba to visit Australia. It was 
uh, a very lengthy process on their end. It took, you know, several months for that process to run its course. A lot of money, a lot of questions, a lot of bounced back documents and forms that Cubans had to refill out or provide additional information over. So unfortunately, the blockade does also impact Cubans attempting to leave their country. But I will qualify that with it affects Cuban travel rights for certain countries. So as I mentioned at the very start of this little section, there are a lot of countries that where it is easier for Cubans to go and visit. I mean, for example, I know uh, quite a few of my Cuban friends and colleagues have gone to Venezuela for holidays, you know, over the Christmas period. A lot of them have gone to Russia if they have a little bit more money. Of course, that's a more expensive trip. So Cubans do travel. Cubans do visit other countries, but they're maybe just not countries that we in Australia or in the United States are used to considering as tourism destinations. What about the health and educational professionals who you've been speaking about in the last year or so who spend time in the Pacific nations? How do they get on? This is another very difficult process from the logistical standpoint uh, because Cuba actually has quite easy, straightforward visa processes when it comes to Pacific countries. For example, with Fiji and Solomon Islands, there is a mutual visa exemption agreement. So Cubans can actually go to Solomon Islands, to Fiji, Nauru as well, Kiribati. All of these Pacific islands are actually open to Cuba. They Cubans can arrive and they'll either get a visa upon arrival or they don't need a visa at all. Now, of course, the issue with getting to these islands is that almost invariably a Cuban will have to pass through the U.S., or Australia or New Zealand. And this is where the difficulties arise. And I will say that these are difficulties that Pacific Islanders have to face as well. And this is one of the great injustices, I think, of Australia's relationship and New Zealand's relationship with the Pacific Islands is that we are able to enter Pacific countries visa-free. We don't need a visa on arrival, nothing for most Pacific Island countries. Pacific Islanders, if they want to come and visit, they have to apply for a full visa. They have to fill out a visa form. They have to undergo police checks uh, in their home country and by the Australian Border Force and Department of Foreign Affairs. So we're imposing all of these extreme obligations on Pacific Islanders to visit Australia or New Zealand. New Zealand is a little bit more lax, but definitely Australia, it's a very, very strict process. And this was you know, a complaint that I heard a lot about the sort of unequal nature of our relationship with the Pacific uh, is that Australian tourists can go and enjoy Fiji for however long they want, virtually. Three months is what we can go to Fiji for without a visa, and then we can apply very easily to extend that by another three months. So we can go for half a year to Fiji with no sort of background check aside from rudimentary you know, passport checking at the airport. But these Fijians or Solomon Islanders or people from Papua New Guinea are having to go through very rigorous processes. And, you know, they have to, again, find family members or relatives in Australia or New Zealand that are willing to be their sponsor to let them come here and that are saying, you know, oh, they'll come here and they will, they'll go back because they have family. They're not just going to become illegal migrants in Australia, which is a very sort of, I mean, to be frank, it's a pretty racist way of looking at that situation, um, you know, assuming that everyone who comes from the Pacific Islands is just looking to enter the country and then stay there as an illegal migrant. But that's the sort of relationship we have with the Pacific when it comes to travel, visas, tourism. And of course, the Cubans who are trying to get to those Pacific Islands to work as doctors or as educators, again, they're having to apply for these very complicated transiting visas 
and not a lot of information is available even on New Zealand or Australian government department websites about the process that you need to undertake to get one of these bridging or um, you know transit visas to just go through a, an Australian city or a New Zealand city to get to the Pacific Islands. It's quite ironic, actually, in that these smaller visas, these you know little bridging visas, are more complicated in terms of the process to to get them to obtain them than a tourism visa or a working holiday visa or something like that. The Cubans, you know, this affects Pacific Islanders as well, as well. It affects a lot of global South countries. It is, to a certain degree, deliberate um, as a means for Australia and New Zealand to keep control over travel in the Pacific. I like to think of it or to describe the situation as. Once you're in the Pacific, I should say the Pacific Islands, it's okay as far as travel is concerned. But to eat, to get in there and to breach that barrier, that visa barrier that Australia and New Zealand and the US have set up, is quite a difficult and lengthy process. And I know of a lot of pers- you know personal testimonies of Cuban doctors who have missed their flights, who have had to go back. To Cuba or go back to a country where Cubans can stay without a visa. Sometimes that's Chile. They'll have their visa rejected in Sydney and they'll have to go back to Chile or they'll have to try and they sort of live in this sort of limbo, this a political limbo waiting for a bridging visa to then reapply for their transit visa. So it has a real impact on the Cubans trying to travel in, in our part of the world. Well, back to the economy. We've established that the economy has great problems How is that impacting on the people on a day-to-day basis? Unfortunately, and you know, this is a really raw topic when you speak with Cubans. You know, I mean, at the moment, I'm just communicating with them over WhatsApp, email. But you can hear in the way that they're writing or or the way that they're speaking, uh, the frustration is really tangible as a result of the current economic situation. So as I mentioned, inflation is sitting at about 30%. Prices within the formal economy are quite are quite high still. They've lowered and there are still subsidies for, you know, the most essential goods, which is important and which is really admirable, I think. You know, the fact that the Cuban government is continuing to provide those subsidised basic products. So, you know, milk, eggs, uh, a certain amount of meat, rice, beans. Cubans are still receiving that at an extremely subsidised price or for free, depending on whether or not you're considered as a vulnerable or at-risk individual or family. But other products that uh, I guess we could call non-essential, but, you know, that most people would still take for granted here and would like to have additional types of meat that aren't chicken, vegetables, all these other sorts of things. Prices are high, even on the formal market. Now, when you go into the informal market, uh, where a lot of produce ends up, you know, due to, uh, I guess we can call it sort of petty, petty corruption, things like that, where, you know, people are taking products and selling them on the informal market, prices are astronomical. Like, you know, you're looking at, at inflation rates in, you know, over 100%. Prices are really, really, really high. And these products are then targeted towards those Cubans that have access to foreign currency. So, you know, that have relatives in the United States and can receive remittances or, you know, that are living in Mexico or um, a lot of Cubans living in Russia. So these Cubans that have the financial means, yes, they're able to access those products that, that are taken from the formal economy, but that then deprives a lot of other Cubans that don't have those financial resources from accessing those other products at an accessible price. So this is a sore point. It's a point of contention, particularly considering that the Cuban government implemented these economic 
restructuring measures, these restructuring programs to try and encourage private business, to try and encourage these sorts of small and medium enterprises as a means of relieving the economic and the health or food distribution situation in the country. And to an extent, and for certain Cubans, it has. And as I said, yes, inflation is reducing. Prices on the formal market are reducing as well. And these products are available in certain stores and for those with the foreign currency that is needed or enough of the local currency that is needed to purchase these products at informal market prices. But these small and medium enterprises, not all of them, but some of them are, you know, taking advantage of this situation, putting these prices up because they know that there are people that will pay those prices to get the product. People are desperate. People really need these products and they'll they'll pay whatever it takes. They'll try and find the money or the means to access those products. And unfortunately, the economic liberalisation that's taken place has been taken advantage of by some of these new private enterprises. And that is a real sore point for Cubans that are still working in the state sector on a state salary and cannot afford private sector prices. So, you know, this is a bit of a contradiction that's happening at the moment, and it's gotten quite acute recently. And when you combine that, as I said, with inflation, when you combine that with the fact that Cuba, that the Cuban state is struggling to access foreign currency at the moment, let alone everyday Cubans, yeah, the economic situation is really quite acute. And as a result, the Cuban government has been toying with the idea of implementing further measures as a means of reducing the state deficit, receiving some more money, and overall trying to balance out the Cuban economic situation and the issue that we have with currency inflation at the moment. Are you talking about rural agriculture as well? And I was wondering what's happening with urban gardens for food production. This is important too because there is always a difference when it comes to urban-rural divide in most countries and in Cuba, of course, as well. Uh, And I think it's important to remember that Cuba is one of the few countries that is still overwhelmingly rural. You know, even though it's got a high human development and all of this, it has the vast majority of its population living in rural sort of situations. Only 2 million people live in Havana. That's out of 10 and a half, 11 million at this stage. So most of Cuba uh, is living in small towns and, uh, you know, villages, rural settlements. So in terms of the situation in those areas, it is also difficult. Uh, but it's difficult in a little bit of a different way. So one of the main issues in rural areas at this stage, again, is this issue of getting foreign currency. Difficult. It's hard for people in Havana, which is the main entry point to the country. It's even more difficult for rural Cubans um, who have to travel great lengths. Sometimes rural banks, branches of the Cuban Central Bank, don't have foreign currency. So these people will have to travel to Havana to get out their foreign currency, things like that. It's quite a... um challenging situation from the logistical standpoint for a lot of rural Cubans. And this, you're right, this issue of food security, which used to not be as acute in the rural areas as compared to Havana, um, has really got quite acute at this stage. And that's because the fuel situation is getting really quite extreme in terms of, you know, there's very low levels. In fact, the Cuban government said there's critical levels of fuel in the country at the moment. So the very, very, very basic services, transport routes, things like that are still running because that is what the Cuban government is able 
to cover, basically. Apart from that, it's sort of a, a free-for-all if you're able to find fuel yourself or if you have some stocks of fuel reserve personally, you're able to keep using it. But otherwise, you know, people are cutting down drastically on even their private car use. Taxis are cutting down drastically on their business because there's not enough fuel to keep running at, I guess, what a regular week would be for us. Fuel is very expensive here, and that's one thing that Cuba has. It has cheap fuel, uh, but it just doesn't have enough. They've almost got the reverse problem of us, where we've got fuel, but it's really expensive. They've got very cheap prices for fuel because it's a subsidised product. Cuban government basically gives it gives it for free to the Cuban people, but it's not there, you know. So this is a really difficult issue, particularly for rural areas and for farms. They can't transport their produce out to the rural centres, you know, sort of like, I guess, provincial capitals, which are mostly towns. They're called cities in Cuba, but they're pretty much towns by our standards. And it's even more difficult to get that produce out to Havana. So we're seeing, you know, weeks long delays for produce to actually arrive at its designated destination. And this is hurting the pockets of Cuban farmers. They're going and they're selling this produce at, at local markets, keeping some for themselves, but they're not getting money from that produce that is just sitting there in their warehouses and in their sheds and things. So from that perspective, we're seeing food waste because it, it just can't get delivered to where it needs to go. It's really difficult then for the urban centres to sustain themselves, to feed themselves, because as you mentioned, there, there is, of course, this really amazing very noble program of permaculture in Cuba, which was begun in the 1990s, actually by Australians. They were part of this group called the Green Team, so environmental activists, scientists, members of the Australia-Cuba Friendship Society that actually began, or, you know, I guess facilitated the Green Team's arrival to Cuba and their cooperation with ICAP and with a lot of other Cuban organisations and institutions. And Cuba became a world leader in permaculture practice. So they actually adopted it wholeheartedly in the 1990s to basically stave off, you know, the threat of starvation, the threat of drastic critical food insecurity that was looming in Cuba at that time in the 90s when the US tightened the blockade. And that was part one of my interview with Sasha Gillies-Lakakis looking at the situation in Cuba. And we'll hear more from Sasha next week especially with the green team and permaculture, but much, much more. Join the National Sustainability Festival in 2024 for a huge program of events this February and March. Featuring visiting economist Stephanie Kelton in conversation about her best-selling book, The Deficit Myth, Uncovering Modern Monetary Theory and the Critical Role of Deficit Spending. Serving as Chief Economist on the US Senate Budget Committee and as Senior Economic Advisor to Bernie Sanders, Stephanie is flipping our understanding of the national debt and the nature of money upside down. For the full festival program and to book online, go to sustainabilityfestival.au. The National Sustainability Festival is a 3CR supporter. It's like we're going through life with one eye shut and one eye open, and we're only getting half the picture. And then somebody like me comes in and says, well, let's make sure we see the full picture. Finding the money 
An exciting new documentary takes us inside the debate between economists who say we can afford to deal with inequality and the climate crisis and the economists who say we can't afford it. An unconventional economic theory is gaining some traction. Modern Monetary Theory, MMT. And one of its leading proponents is Professor Stephanie Kelton. Finding the Money, coming to Melbourne for limited screenings in March 2024. Finding the Money, on tour with renowned economist Stephanie Kelton and independent filmmaker Maren Poitras. Tickets on sale now via modernmoneylab.org.au. The true story of money is not the story that I've been told. Finding the Money, a pivotal documentary for our time, a 3CR supporter. I'm speaking now with Senior Lecturer at RMIT University, Benoit Campmark, about a couple of his recent articles published in Pearls and Irritations. Benoit, let's begin with the ABC series Nemesis. Wonderful descriptions. The inescapable agent of someone or something's downfall. Downfall caused by an inescapable agent. And nemesis. She was a goddess who personified retribution for the sin of hubris, arrogance before the gods. A goddess of dire retribution and revenge. Did the series live up to those descriptions? I think to a large extent it did. I think, first of all, there's the broader issue of politics and the fact that uh, people who do win office uh, do tend to come in with certain expectations of how they understand the way power is to be wielded. They are often unaware, precisely because of their hubris, the wonderful old Greek term about simply being overly confident and they are duly punished and then meet their nemesis as it were as you just very adequately described and I think it was very much the case of the series about each one of the leaders who came to office uh, be it Tony Abbott of course Malcolm Turnbull and then Scott Morrison all of them assuming that they were immune assuming that they didn't have powerful enemies and assuming that they could actually last their term in office and of course none of them I mean, uh, you know, with the exception of Morrison of winning the election in 2019, essentially lived out their terms. So the uh, the kind of cannibalism and ritualistic disemboweling that seemed to characterize Australian politics for so long continued under their rule. Well, two agreed to participate. Abbott declined. Do you think Morrison and Turnbull regretted being on the series? <laughs> Well, I can't really speak for them, but I, I would say that uh, you know Turnbull never passes an opportunity to speak about, of course, his colleagues, uh, his former Liberal Party colleagues you know, these days. And I think he is one of those classic examples uh, of a person oozing and dripping resentment after leaving office. And I think he's, he's one who's certainly not quiet about his time in office. And I think, you know, I have remarked upon this uh, elsewhere that his appraisal about his time, one would not believe that there were any problems and one would not believe that you know he was deeply handicapped by his own decisions but um as for of course uh, morrison uh, he is impregnable to truth uh, it doesn't matter what he says it's extraordinary how mendacious that man is it's very hard to gauge that you could 
trust anything that ever comes out of that man's mouth. So both of them in their different ways, whether they regret it or not, certainly gave them a chance. The series gave them a chance to at least vent about you know, their colleagues and, and also to get, I suppose, an insight as to what other colleagues would be thinking about them. And of course, the one Liberal who didn't get a Guernsey was Dutton. Yes, that's right. He, he, it's, it's very interesting that uh, there were certain omissions. You rightly say, for example, Abbott uh, de- declined to participate. And, and yes, uh, Dutton doesn't really feature there. And he's, of course, uh, always this uh, dark force lurking in the background. He's always in the subtext, uh, and in some cases very much in the, 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 the chief text when it comes to these uh, spoiling maneuvers. But I suppose... When we think about it, one of the interesting things about it from the Morrison perspective is the way he behaved like the true advertising man that he is, in the sense that he was lurking in the background, insubstantial, and then he duly wielded the knife when he needed to. And this is exactly what he did when he ultimately, even though he was meant to be the compromise figure, him and not Dutton, uh, it nonetheless was clear that Morrison was himself plotting very early on. And this is one of the great illusions that somehow... He was not a significant player. He didn't have the numbers, as he loves to say. But in actual fact, he was always lurking in the background as a potential. And you commented that they all failed for different reasons, but that doesn't exclude the thing that they all failed. (laughs) Yes, I suppose you would have to say that each one of their elements of rule at a critical time uh, yeah, were, were in, in their various respects disastrous. And I can only say they could have been worse, but uh, yeah, it was uh, each one of their tenures was marked by you know, significant problems, you know, be it policies on you know, refugees, you know, be it uh, policies on technology, be it defense, be it security. I mean, my goodness me, at the end of uh, their particular period in office, we now see this country mortgaged to the hilt to the interests of another power, um, militarily a vassal and subordinate uh, to the interests of Washington. So it's all, it, it was really a, I would say in some ways, almost a tragic chapter in Australian political history, you know, and then we will have to revisit it at stages for the legacy that left. But you also said that bloodletting used to be a Labour speciality? Well, I suppose in a sense, once the um, once Rudd came into office in twenty in two thousand and seven, he came into office at a particular period when it was it signaled the triumph of the pollster, uh, the uh, the backroom party hack and factional leader, and this is something that, of course, you know, it has been said before the so-called um, the famous faceless men. Uh, mention about uh, the Labour Party and its tribal chiefs, uh, you know, going about doing deals behind the doors and subverting the leadership. But as the Labour Party started it in the sense of that, and then it crept through the entire political scene. It seemed to filter into the, the waters of other parties, and also from Canberra, it filtered out into state parliaments as well. It seemed to become a a tendency to easily depose the leader. And of course, that's the problem with the Westminster system, precisely because the prime minister is drawn from the major party or the largest party in the parliament. Um, it results in the fact that the party says, has the say rather than the elector per se. So that makes it very problematic and I think is a real weakness in the Westminster model. What mark would you give the series out of 10? Well, I I don't know. I'm not really into grading, um, Jan, but I would have to say that uh, I I think it was good to see the characters expressing their views and the 
And it was simply gory and violent in so many ways, and it was psychologically violent, vicious, and, and so forth. But, but I'd say that in terms of um, what is important for your listeners to perhaps also appreciate is that a lot was left out in the series too. And I do feel that even though they obviously had to cull, they, they just couldn't, you know, the, the episode, um, the installment of Morrison, the third one, uh, you know, omitted a whole number of things, you know, be it, for example, uh, the Roth's affairs that were extensive, uh, they mentioned the usual bits, uh, you know, of course, like the bushfire, the disastrous decision to, and, and also secretive decision taken to visit Hawaii on a family trip whilst Australia was burning. But uh, lots of things were also left out in it. And I think for that reason, the series perhaps is a bit weakened. You know? So maybe if I did have to have a grade to give it, I'd say maybe six out of ten. Okay. Next to Memorandum of Understandings, what does that term usually mean? So what happens with a memorandum of understanding when it's used in the political context is an agreement or framework agreement, or it, it can be called various things, but it is made between governments uh, with an understanding that certain, it's essentially it's a contract, if you like. You know, they don't want to call it a contract because states technically don't make contracts, but they do reach or, or broker memorandum of understanding. So a classic example is that, for example, you know, um, the United Kingdom has a memorandum of understanding with Rwanda about transferring asylum seekers to Rwanda, that ghastly sort of thing being debated in Britain at the moment. And, of course, uh, in the Australian context, states can reach, and this is the interesting thing, which is fascinating in the Australian context, states can also make memoranda of understanding, you know, with countries and departments of other countries and this is where this discussion gets rather interesting. We'll talk about this Victorian government secret memorandum with the Israeli Defence Ministry. It's you say it's it's sparked outrage. For what reason? Well uh, the, the thing is this particular um, agreement is between the Victorian government and no less the Israeli Defense Forces, or the Israeli uh, Ministry of Defense. The Israeli Ministry of Defense has an office within it with which the Memorandum of Understanding was reached by the Victorian government. But what was strange about it was that it was that there was not a peep out of any Victorian official about this, you know, when it was made in, in 2022. But, interestingly enough, if you look at uh, Israeli announcements, it is mentioned. It is actually mentioned on their social media pages and their posts which is quite fascinating, but not a peep out of uh, Victorian politicians, officials, public servants, or any note in the media or anything like that. So it was in December 2022, that's, that's true, but at the same time, Israel was still, you know, with the, given the fact it is the Ministry of Defense and given uh, Israel's various policies towards Palestinians, it was still a risky thing to reach, um, given the fact that v Victoria's various memoranda of understanding reached with, for example, China, were cancelled by the Morrison government. They were terminated because they were not in the national interest. So that made that particular memorandum of understanding strange in various respects. And of course, focus was then reached or was issued on it after the October 7th attacks, of course, by Hamas on Israel and the subsequent slaughter ensuing in Gaza. So that's now you know, generated parliamentary interest. But I found it extraordinary that nothing was really mentioned about it until then. Well, they must have realised that it was, wasn't going to be secret forever if the Israelis were letting it out. So 
Why did they take? Yeah, well, I, uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, no. I just wanted to say, uh, of course, uh, the the thing that's interesting about it is that usually more details are made about it. But what they've done, what the Victorian government has done, is essentially met, still re- refuses to detail the, what's happening. Uh, you know, the only statements we have about it is that well, there is an agreement. It is on the foreign register. So if you go to the foreign register. Uh, you will notice this agreement there, no details about it, simply that there's a memorandum of understanding reached between uh, the Victorian government and then uh, the Israeli Ministry of Defense, but that's essentially it. Details are very uh, scant to come by, and in fact, the only statements coming out of uh, Victorian parliamentarians you know, from the Labour government is that uh, no substantive actual exchanges have taken place as yet, but, but of course, that's not strictly speaking true, Given the fact that uh, you know Elbit Systems, you know the drone-making company, um, as it were, does have a branch in Melbourne. Melbourne actually hosts several Israeli defence companies, and Victoria is actually a very attractive site for that. So this is not technically speaking true either, and it's very interesting to see that because, of course, Victor- the Victorian government has provided cedar money to Elbit Enterprises in Port Melbourne itself. Uh, with uh, support, I should add, of, you know, from RMIT University as well. So this is one of the strange things about it, where the details are just simply not being disclosed in, in any considerable way. The Greens are trying to kill it? Yes, the Greens are certainly trying to do that. But, uh, you know, what is they, uh, that will only happen if, of course, they have numbers or if they, if they can sway opinion. And unfortunately, um, unless... Well, unless the pressure builds up, you know, amongst others, certainly within the the, the Labour government, this might happen. But uh, at this point, you know, these kind of memoranda of understanding can essentially be on paper and not much necessarily be done about it. It's true that maybe little will come of it, but the fact is it's there and it is mentioned uh, and and it is a significant problem. There is a significant, uh, you know, groundswell in the Labour government uh, in order to actually... Uh, kill it off. I just don't see it happening because these memoranda of understanding can just remain on paper. They may not necessarily be enacted upon, although the fact that it is there is of interest. Absolutely. Um, but so it's a bit of a cheap way of trying to evade the implications of the agreement by saying not much is being done about it. But the fact is that you know the current government seems to be trying to hold out as much as possible in order to avoid scrapping it. Well, you've mentioned RMIT, and they're not the only university in Australia which are participating with the Israelis in these in these issues. Why is Australia such a, a place for Israel? Australia has been identified as a as a corporately friendly, if you like, outlet for Israeli defence corporations. So, for example, um, Elbit and a number of other Israeli corporations are providing the technological backup for aspects of the Australian Defence Force. Uh, so it is very uh, entwined in aspects of the Australian economy, un- unbeknownst to many people. I think people get quite surprised in the main when they start to see the extent of Israeli military corporate involvement. But agreements have been made over the years. It's been a strategy of the Israeli, um, essentially the Australian, uh, the Israeli public arm of the military to cultivate relations in Australia. They've had a very aggressive campaign of various corporations to do that, and they've been actually quite successful. Um, and what is fascinating about the strategy, of course, is that it it is always uh, 
uh, emphasized, as it were, the prowess of Israeli technology, the, the skills of the Israeli um, defense force, rather than, of course, the, the more sinister, problematic implications of the technology, such as drone technology. Of course, everything about Elbit is deeply problematic because Elbit essentially uh, tests its technology on, of course, live subjects, namely the Palestinians in Gaza, uh, especially when it comes to its drones. It's actually been, in 2014, the Hermes drone, which is a famous uh, or infamous product of Elbit, was used uh, in attacks on the Gaza Strip. And that is, of course, and Elbit is very, very much a prominent feature in the defense landscape here in Australia. And as has been uncovered, there seems to be a multitude of Australian businesses busting at the seams to get into the action of, of sending parts and bits and pieces to Israel for their weapons of mass destruction. Well, I mean, certainly when it comes to component parts, that's exactly right. Uh, so, so Australia is sort of like, um, you know, I wouldn't say quite a halfway house, but, but certainly when it comes to component parts, it's becoming quite big. So whether it's, for example, armor, which is an important feature, of course, of the, of, of the defense forces, and Australian armor is considered actually quite highly in Israeli circles. So that's an example of, of you know, the assembly part of the Australian role there. So uh, it is, yes, and, and you have to remember, um, this is something that's, was not mentioned, by the way, to tie it back to our previous discussion about Nemesis, something that Turnbull, or should have been mentioned more about the Turnbull time in office, was that Turnbull was absolutely gaga about defense and about Australia's defense industries and about defense corporations. And that was a time when a lot of investment was taking place of trying to make Australia a big arms manufacturer. And um, and this is tied in with the, in the context of business with Tell me about the Quaker discovery. What what did they do to find out what's going on in countries apart from Australia, contributing to the Israeli Defence Force? Well, I mean, you know, in, in terms of the this particular effort, um, it's the extent of it has been impressive in the sense that their research shows extensively that um, you know U.S. firms, especially, you know, have been contributing, of course, uh, and, and very extensively, not just U.S. firms, of course. And I think I have made the remark that. Uh, various groups in the United States, especially, as you say, the Quaker groups in, in particular, have been very about this, and they've identified the deep, extensive links uh, between these, the whole corporate complex that links the various defenses of other states to Israel, and that's that's really very striking. So it's it's also um, German corporations, it's also French corporations, it's a range of other groups as well. And in that list, um, you know, should be added, of course, in Australia, is, is sort of somewhat omitted. But I think in a broader sense, it just demonstrates, one, how successful Israel's uh, campaign has been. And, of course, how it essentially, and let's not forget, is a recipient of a huge amount of and continual, continuous recipient of military aid from other countries, mostly the United States. And so that's one of the, the things that then raises the problem that, well, what's the complicit role or what's the complicity of countries as third parties when it comes to allegations of war crimes, you know, crimes against humanity and genocide taking place in Gaza? And this puts countries at risk of being complicit. You know, and the ongoing discussions, of course, in the International Court of Justice are very critical in that regard. What's your feelings about the 
so-called change of heart of Penny Wong toward what the Israelis are doing in Gaza? Well, it's a very modest change of heart, to be to be honest. I don't. I think the typical Wong approach, if you like, is to essentially meander in the middle somewhere. Initially, um, to be strident, and then try to sort of adopt what looks like a more, you know, propitiating approach and whatnot. But I just don't see that as being significant. I think fundamentally, I know the, of course, the coalition, uh, the opposition want uh, are very hawkish. Uh, they want Australia essentially to. Uh, resist any notion of a ceasefire and, and not even, you know, calling for a modest humanitarian ceasefire. They essentially keep insisting on mentioning Hamas, Hamas all the way, you know, destroying it and whatnot. But essentially the, the change of heart is happening because the the atmosphere is becoming so poisoned uh, in terms of uh, Israel's public image, if you like, that it cannot be resisted anymore. And that's one of the reasons why Australia, I would say that Wong and Australian the Australian government generally, the Albanese government, doesn't want to be seen on the wrong side of history because it is a very problematic thing to have to be essentially linked to the campaign of which Australia's defence, Australia's involvement is linked. You know, be it in terms, we still don't know, for example, the extent that Australia is involved with the assembly of the F-35 fighter parts, the US-made parts, but they also Australia is a contributor to. The assembling the the craft, or part part assembled, should I say, of parts, and so the fact that they could be involved in Australian involvement in Gaza is very problematic. Just finally, Benoit Julian Assange, he is due in court in London on the twentieth of February. A very ill man. Yes, he's not he's not well, and it, it is very desperate. And I think uh, the desperation came through somewhat in the motion that was put in the Australian Parliament a few days ago, and passed by majority. You know, much and much to the shame, I would say, of many in the opposition, who seem to think that uh, Assange did not warrant, you know, being encouraged to be released and come um, back to be returned to Australia. Um, it is a critical moment. Uh, the for two days, the Assange team, the legal team, will have to convince judges of the Court of Appeal that essentially the entire case has to be not reheard, but the merits of it have to be reconsidered, stretching right back to the district judge's decision uh, in, in 2021, N- namely whether a list of terrible, grievous violations about his human rights have taken place. And I now, without having to go through the technical side of it, you know, the, all the things the defense could raise, the issue of the espionage on him you know, by UC Global in the Ecuadorian embassy, the issue of the novel charges that were brought at short notice at the extradition stage, the issue of his appalling detention and his facilities, the fact that the entire trial is political, all of these things should feature. Um, and it's, it's critical for his health, as you say. He is in the most notorious British prison, Belmarsh, and his conditions are appalling and poor. So it is desperation at, at this point, and, and I cannot stress that enough. And the consequences for journalism worldwide of this case? Yes, uh, it, it's quite shocking that uh, it is true that a lot is now being said about it and that even mainstream media networks have finally woken up to the dangers of the trial outlets that had previously cheered on essentially the uh, the capture 
and the proceedings against the person they regard as a, as a phony journalist and one who essentially has been cutting their grass, uh, but hasn't been, you know, is not deemed a true journalist because he's supposedly given up identities and, and supposedly been a hacker and things like that. Um, but they've now realized that the implications are that every journalistic outlet and every individual who publishes material that reveals war crimes, because that's what, and all of it is almost, almost always of a classified nature, anyone who engages in that is susceptible to um, extradition, to trial, um, and so forth. The damage that this, these proceedings have on the, on the fourth estate, on, on journalism in general, and free speech in general, uh, cannot be exaggerated in any sense. It's a very dire time, and the moment he does get on a plane uh, to be sent to the States, um, you can more or less call the whole thing off. It's, it's quite disturbing. And the role of Australia could have been much better. Yes, it could have been. I think it's very interesting that, uh, and let's not forget, uh, and, and much to her shame, Australia's uh, first female Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, was the one who got immediately on the soapbox and decided uh, that when the particular cables of the State Department were released by WikiLeaks, that Assange was responsible essentially for criminal act. Uh, and, and much to um, her embarrassment, when any investigation was undertaken by the Australian Federal Police to see if in that it had in fact happened, they could identify no provision anywhere that this was the case. So there has been a change of heart, but as you could see in the vote on February 14th, there are still Australian politicians that cling to the belief that these proceedings have some merit. Um, so yes, the vote was overwhelmingly in favour for him, for the charges to be dropped and for him to return to Australia. But there is still, you know, the, uh, the authoritarian Dutton-esque scepter or spectre in the background hovering that wants to see Assange tried and locked up. Well, we can only hope for the best at this stage. Thanks very much, Benoit. It's a pleasure, Jan, as always. And Dr Benoit Campmark lectures at RMIT University here in Melbourne. Tracia needs members to survive. By becoming a subscriber, you're helping us to remain fiercely independent and free of commercials and corporate influence. Are you a paid-up subscriber? It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Great value for 24-7 community-owned and community-controlled media. Please become a subscriber member today. Call the station on 03-9419-8377 or sign up online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. 
Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. Today we hear from John Lander, whose great concern is the betrayal of the Australian people by its own government, and we'll hear him outline his reasons why. But first, John, you have had decades of a diplomatic career working overseas and also in Australia. When and how did that begin for you? Uh, Well, I started in foreign affairs back in 1967, and my first posting was to Malaysia, but um, shortly after that, I was sent to China as the deputy ambassador uh, when we were establishing uh, relations with the People's Republic of China in 1974, where I was until 1976. Uh, On three separate occasions over the course of the next 30 years, I was the director of Australia's relations with China in the Department of Foreign Affairs and was responsible for such things as the establishment of consular relations between our two countries, which I basically set up single-handedly until the final decision by the Prime Minister. In between time, I I was posted to a couple of other countries, but always came back to China uh, or Chinese affairs till I was Australia's first ambassador to the Islamic Republic of Iran during the Iran-Iraq war. And one of my most important roles as ambassador at that time was to maintain Australia's neutrality with regard to that conflict that we strictly took no sides either with Iran or Iraq. And I was there from 85 to 88 when the war finally came to an end in February 1988 when Iran accepted the Security Council resolution designed to bring about an end to the fighting. My final role was in a permanent delegate to UNESCO in Paris and shortly after that I retired and I have been retired since 1996. But um, in recent years I have become increasingly alarmed at the way in which Australia has been manoeuvred into a position where we are basically taking a hostile approach towards China, uh, which is, of course, our principal trading partner and on whom we have been reliant quite a long time for our own continuing prosperity. I mean, any move towards war with any country, I think, should be opposed the only way peace can be maintained is by developing mutually beneficial cooperative relationships with other countries and deliberately moving towards a policy of hostility, particularly towards a country that has always expressed friendship towards Australia, seems to me to be a very counterproductive approach. Well, not just counterproductive, but you've called it betrayal. The process of betrayal of Australian sovereignty and Australian independence has been going on. It's been a gradual process over a long time. 
it's been part of the so-called bipartisan foreign policy that Australian governments have always adopted. Uh, it really began basically with the signing of the ANZUS Agreement, uh, which is a treaty, and has been going on ever since, but has accelerated very significantly under the previous Morrison government with the announcement of the AUKUS Pact and the present government with the significant reinforcement of the AUKUS Pact and its implications. I see that the government of whatever stripe has basically been gradually and um, without the general public really understanding or noticing, has been gradually surrendering Australia's independence to a foreign power, no matter how much we may regard the United States as a friendly nation, it is never advisable, I think, for any country to hand over its sovereign independence to any other foreign country. We should always try to maintain a degree of independence and independent capacity for decision-making, particularly on matters of existential consequence to the nation. We need to unpack that AUKUS treaty, don't we? A great emphasis on the submarines, but it's much, much wider than that. Well, yes, it is. Um, The unfortunate thing is it's not a treaty. It's not even a formal written agreement. It's uh, often referred to as the AUKUS Pact. AUKUS itself, the so-called alliance between Australia, the UK and the United States, but principally with the United States, is an an unwritten understanding. You can't get a copy of the agreement to study its implications because it doesn't exist. So it's evolving all the time. Under the heading of AUKUS, all sorts of things are being done, all of which undermine Australia's independence. As you said, it's not only the purchase of the submarines, which I think is one of the most egregious aspects, because basically we are handing over our independence and sovereign um, ability to determine how, when, where and why and against whom we might go to war. Uh, We're handing that over to the United States and we're paying to do so billions and billions of dollars to acquire a nuclear submarine capability, which is quite evidently designed to be used against China in, in, the, in the pursuit of the United States' declared objective of containing China. And they are clearly, because of the, the, the nature of the technology, and particularly the size of the, the submarines, they are clearly not designed for use in the relatively shallow territorial waters of Australia. They are designed for, as Richard Miles says, long-arm projection of Australian lethal force far from our shores. This this is obviously part of the uh, American intention to exercise continuing supremacy in our region, particularly directed against China. It should not be forgotten that with the announcement of the AUKUS Pact 2022 now, presidential advisor on Asian affairs in the United States, a gentleman called Kurt Campbell, actually boasted that with AUKUS, Australia has now been locked into 
United States defense policy for the next 40 years. And United States defense policy, um, there is no secret of it. It's publicly stated in many documents and very frequently that its policy is to perceive China as the number one threat to United States so-called leadership role in the world it is to contain China, that is to prevent China's economic and political development to the point where it might actually counterbalance the United States leadership position in the world. Unfortunately, our Australian governments over, the, over time have always assumed and perceived Australia's interests as being identical with those of the United States. And I do not believe that our interests always coincide. And in fact, in many cases, they're actually uh, contrary to each other. Uh, I don't think that Australia has any fundamental interest in locking itself into the pursuit of United States dominance of our region. We need a, a much more collaborative approach to the whole region. John, there is some degree of scepticism as, as whether these submarines actually come to fruition, but looking at what's happening on the ground here in Australia at the moment, what's costing Australia billions, and also, as you say, it's a betrayal of our sovereignty. Can you talk about some of the other issues? We've already begun spending billions of dollars on, on AUKUS, not just on the submarines, but certainly on the submarines and on many other aspects of it. From an economic point of view, it's a, an economic betrayal because the diversion of significant financial resources into a technology which, as you say, may very well never come to fruition, and even if it does, by the time it does, it will probably be obsolete because of the technological advances in war fighting capabilities that countries like China will have made. But it betrays the economic interests of the Australian people in having affordable housing, in having uh, a thriving and functioning uh, healthcare system, in having a world's best education system, which I saw a report the other, the other day which said that literacy in Australia is declining in the 21st century. That is absolutely shameful. So there are many ways in which the diversion of economic resources into increasingly expensive defence activities is depriving uh, the economy of the resources that it needs to, to develop across all other fields. It also represents a betrayal in the sense that under the name of AUKUS, the United States Defence Force and the Australian Defence Force have now become so integrated that independence of action of the Australian Defence Force is really almost completely obliterated. That's very clear, of course, in uh, Australia's participation in the illegal bombing of Yemen in the Red Sea, Australia's participation in those, uh, what I call illegal actions, it's perfectly legal to defend shipping against attacks, but it isn't under, under United Nations international law. 
it is not legal to attack and, and bomb the territory of another sovereign country if that country is not directly threatening your own territory. Australia has not come under threat from Yemen, but Yemen is very much under threat from Australia because we've involved ourselves in those attacks. And it is in the name of AUKUS that's been done. We've been betrayed morally. Australia's moral standing in the world has been betrayed by the government through its providing political and military support to the wholesale slaughter of the Palestinians in Gaza and the destruction of their living environment. We continue to provide that support despite the fact that Israel government has actually declared its intention to obliterate the Palestinian presence in territory which it claims to be greater Israel. Another core value, I think, of the Australian people, which is a belief in the fair go for everyone, has been betrayed because the treatment of the Palestinians since 1948, when they were first driven out of their homes, up until today, could hardly be described as a fair go. That principle, of course, has been further betrayed by the government's decision to suspend funding to uh, UNRWA, the United Nations um, Authority that is principally responsible for bringing humanitarian aid to the people of Gaza on the basis of unproven allegations of a few staff members of UNRWA having backed and celebrated the initial attack by Hamas on the 7th of October, the response to which, of course, has been hugely disproportionate and completely unjustified. We have also been betrayed legally in that the government has failed to fulfil its obligation under the Genocide Convention to do everything in its power to prevent a genocide or a potential genocide. Uh, Yemen, of course, has taken its, its own action as it sees it under the, genocide, under the Genocide Convention by trying to prevent shipping to and from Israel. Such a method of blockading, of course, has been used by the United States in many precedents, and it was even used by Israel against Gaza, both in the past and, at the, and right at, at the present day. Australia has been placed in legal jeopardy of being prosecuted in the International Court of Justice for complicity in genocide. The ICJ issued an interim injunction for the effect that Israel had a case to answer and that it should immediately desist from any action liable to imperil the civilian population of Gaza. But Israel announced even before that ruling that it would defy it and would continue the slaughter. By persisting in supporting Israel, the Australian government has indicated that it also flouts the ICJ ruling. By our own actions, we have undermined the rule of law and replaced it with the rule of the jungle. Reverting to the question of Taiwan, of course, Australia has a treaty obligation, which is a legal obligation, to recognise China as a single entity, that there is but one China, that the province of Taiwan is a integral part of China's sovereign territory. When we, Australia, uh, participate in naval and aerial exercises in Taiwan's uh, waters or over Taiwan's territorial seas, we are in fact breaching 
the international law relating to the law of the sea because it does not provide for a country to be able to conduct military operations within the territorial waters of another country. Our legal position is that therefore the territorial waters around Taiwan are part of China. So the Taiwan Strait in particular would have to be seen as part of China's territorial waters or part of China's territory, not open to military operations by third parties. But we have been conducting those exercises in conjunction with the United States for quite a large number of years now. And of course, any kind of reaction by China to that activity is always misrepresented as Chinese aggression to to reinforce the notion that China is a threat and that we must uh, prepare ourselves to go to war against it. John, do you see in a sense that Australian government members are out of their depth and that they're floundering a bit with their moves with the United States? They're just following blindly without looking at the consequences? Um, No, I don't believe it's blind. The process of uh, establishing United States control over the policy-making processes in Australia has also been ongoing for a long time. Uh, There's no denying that the Australian Strategic Policy Institute has very heavy investment from the United States and from US weapons manufacturers, which skews uh, the advice that it provides to government. There's no denying that the Australian Intelligence Service has now US agents embedded within it so that we have no independent ability to assess developments outside of Australia in our own region uh, and to arrive at independent decisions decisions on how to deal with that. Most of the Australian government and other prominent people within the Australian parliament have participated in such things as the so-called leadership dialogue between Australia and the United States, again, over quite a number of years, which has been clearly designed to influence the, the minds and the perceptions of these leaders. And such things as the regular meetings, the so-called OSMIN meetings, the meetings between Australian and, and American defence and foreign ministers on a regular basis, is also specifically designed to ensure that Australia's policy perceptions always align with the United States. Perhaps I should have said led by the nose. Well, (laughs) you could put it that way, yes. We don't have in our government or in uh, our leadership within the Australian Parliament people who have a view of our relations with the United States that is unvarnished and not not seen through sort of rose-coloured spectacles. Our former Prime Minister, Malcolm Fraser, of course, came to that view in his latter years after he had retired uh, in that he, I think, extremely clearly set out the way in which defence relationship with the United States is an extremely dangerous relationship for Australia in that, of course, it's inevitably drags Australia into conflict, into any conflict that the United States 
goes into. And of course, the United States has always said that it will use all means in its power, including military force, to prevent any country from challenging its position as top dog in the world. We're kind of running alongside the top dog, snapping at any country that dares to challenge America, because we see that as apparently as a challenge to Australia as well. We do have some people in the parliament now who I think have a much, who are much more clear-eyed about what Australia's position in our own region should be. People like Jordan Steele, John, I think are extremely uh, perceptive and very articulate. And he has basically set forward uh, a view which is consistent with what Paul Keating put forward, which is that Australia should seek its security within Asia, not against Asia. Our policy of trying to have a flourishing trade relationship with China whilst espousing an attitude of hostility towards China is fundamentally schizophrenic, is inevitably going to lead to disaster in probably the not-too-distant future. It also, of course, means that we are alienating ourselves from our own region. There is no country in the Asia-Pacific region that has endorsed or supported in any way Australia's hostility towards China. All of the major countries, including the Association of Southeast Asian Nations uh, and Indonesia, of course, which is vastly larger than Australia in terms of population and is not a communist country, uh, in fact, it's an Islamic country, have nevertheless pursued a policy of collaboration and mutual benefit in terms of relations with China. The end of 2022, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations renewed and upgraded their comprehensive partnership treaty with China, the, the comprehensive strategic partnership. They have no shown, shown no sign of moving away from collaboration with China, careful and measured and wary, of course, because of China's obvious power. But nevertheless, they see no benefit to be gained from confronting China in a hostile manner. Whereas we have clearly decided that we will uh, go along with the United States in its attempt to contain China economically and, if necessary, militarily, which will be to our own detriment in the long term. As some commentators say, this is the, the dying empire of the United States. Do you agree with that? Yes, although it's extremely hard to assess how long that process will take if, in fact, it is uh, a linear historical process. One cannot but be alarmed at what is happening within the United States in terms of its own internal social disintegration, uh, a symptom of which, of course, is the, uh, the very high frequency of mass shootings of civilians by civilians within the country. The other issue which, of course, has preoccupied most of the civilian population and some of the Congress has been this policy of open borders between itself and Mexico, which is resulting in 
a flood of illegal immigrants into the country. I'm not opposed to immigration. This, Australia was established on the basis and, and, and has prospered on the basis of immigration. But uncontrolled mass migrations of people always brings in its wake social disintegration and um, destroys the cohesion of the society. And I think that is something that we are seeing in the United States. Whether it will end up causing uh, the collapse of the American political system, uh, I'm not sure. The other question, of course, is that as more and more countries see China as an alternative to the United States, particularly in economic and financial terms, they are moving away from the United States dollar as the fiat currency, as the, the currency of international exchange. We've seen this in increasingly large and increasingly frequent sell-off of United States debt. The United States has been funding itself for many years and uh, at the moment up to a level of $34 trillion of national sovereign debt by selling bonds to other countries. Those have in the past been seen as a sound investment because the interest on those bonds and eventually the, repayment, the uh, repurchase of the bond by the United States uh, has guaranteed uh, a level of finance in terms of dollars going to third parties who have purchased United States debt. As countries divest themselves, uh, or it's called de-dollarize themselves, the inherent value of the United States dollar uh, will decline. Many econ economic analysts argue that the value of the United States dollar eventually will collapse. And of course, that will have implications for the entire world because the collapse of the United States dollar means the collapse of the United States economy. A country that has invested something like 45% of its federal discretionary spending in the military, we mustn't forget the United States spends more on its military than the next 10 countries combined. The next largest military spender these days is, of course, China, and that has been referred to frequently by Australian ministers as being an unprecedented military build-up, but ignoring, of course, the unprecedented military build-up of the United States, which is three times greater than China's and is equivalent to the expenditure of the 10 next largest countries, which includes, of course, Russia. One last point, John. What would you like that to be? Emphasise to listeners that Australian democracy itself has been betrayed by its own government since nearly all of these decisions that we've been talking about, uh, in particular AUKUS, have been taken in secret with no consultation with the parliament nor the people. The government has taken an increasingly autocratic and authoritarian approach to implementing these decisions, done so not only riding roughshod over the democratic principle that the elected representatives of the people should have the opportunity to debate and decide policy issues of potentially existential consequence. It has betrayed even its own party, rank and file of which has been ignored and their views dismissed.
the general population, if it wakes up, will realise that it, is, it has had no opportunity to influence the direction of Australian foreign and defence policy. So even if we feel that it's going in the wrong direction, there's very little that we are able to do about it since the normal democratic channels have basically been shut down. Thanks very much, John. Thanks, Jan, and we might have an opportunity to talk again. I've been speaking with retired Australian diplomat, John Lander. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.